0: to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents, who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. I can't. Hi, this is Steve Clark. Hey, thanks for joining me today. I want to go over some big picture items. And particularly, I wanted to go over uh, a philosophy of sorts of mine, or you might say um, uh, an acronym that I use to encompass a lot of the things that I do on court. Um, And this is with uh, a team or individuals. Um, I call it my focus um, uh, outline or focus philosophy. I'll go over that, as well as talking about process versus outcome or product-oriented coaching. Additionally, I'm going to talk about some aspects of competition, maybe a proper view of competition. And related to that is transformational coaching versus transactional coaching. Uh, A former professional football player, Joe Ehrman, um, wrote a book called Inside Out Coaching, and he talks about this. And I think uh, if you ever uh, want to have an excellent read, uh, pick a copy of that up. But he talks about, and I think he words it really well, what a lot of us coaches think about, and that's uh, transformational versus transactional coaching, and I'll go through that a little bit. And, you know, one of the questions, for example, in that is, do sports really teach character? And uh, and if uh, so, uh, what about it? Or if not, what is needed? So one of the first things I'd like to do is just go over uh, my focus uh, philosophy. And um, the first thing in dealing or, or spelling it out is it's obviously F-O-C-U-S. The F stands for... Fundamentals, the O stands for opportunities, C stands for conditioning U for unity, and S for success and I'd mentioned this on a prior broadcast after I'd finished an interview and years ago, when I was at uh, the all American tournament in Texas in Austin, Texas, a couple of my players uh, they were captains of the team. And we discussed uh how would we like to formalize um what we really believe in when we practice day in and out day in and day out and what we the time we put on court uh, and our scheduling and all these things and um it's actually become a, a formal uh, mantra i use uh, things are kind of based on it I also have uh Uh, posters, and other things that I I use for it. But again, it's fundamentals, opportunity, conditioning, unity, and success. There's some other values associated with that, and I'll go over those in a bit. But let me first start off with fundamentals. So fundamentals, you know, we want to strive to have all court-oriented players. Uh, They're fundamentally solid, mechanically um, and the the all court player can put pressure on opponents from just about anywhere on the court. Oftentimes, players are too one dimensional, or they may have a blatant weakness. And obviously, uh, uh, one of the fastest ways to improve your game is to work on a weakness. So, if you're focused on the fundamentals, um, knowing, in fact, uh, Manny Diaz over at Georgia, we talked about this uh, just about practice. Uh, what we're doing in practice. And he mentioned the whole idea of, uh, and I agree with him, is that in your practice you should have several components where your strengths and you feel really comfortable and you work on those things because those are, after all, ways you win your points the majority of the time. You know, your, uh, your patterns of play. I call it bread and butter. Uh, you should have those uh, down and, and spend time practicing them. But that there's also the times that you need to have your weaknesses worked on, so let's say in a practice, maybe uh, we're just talking about a format as you have uh maybe three or four things that you work on your strengths, um, a couple things in between, and then maybe a couple weaknesses um, because if you can shore those up, then it's harder for people to uh to attack you. but on a real broad scale though uh fundamentals aren't just tactical they're not just they're also technical. Uh, mental, time management, momentum management, um, and I would even say warming up or kind of how even stretching, all these things that go into preparation for a match or in practice, those are part of your fundamentals. Um, so, for example, I I do think that, uh, you know, I have another piece that I write and I'll probably talk about it sometime, is the whole idea that most people, when they talk about their, You know, what would they like to improve on? They're always talking about their strokes. Well, really, uh, the majority of the time that we play um, a good portion of that is not doing anything. So you have, I think the average on tour, it may be increasing now, but it used to be years ago. You know, a point was maybe 10 seconds long uh, for the men. And then, you know, you have 20 seconds between points. So most people, uh, they had a lot of time. You might call it uh, solitary time uh, between the points. And uh, I I like the way the Australians uh, word it, but you go have a walkabout. But the idea is, what do we do between that time? Well, I addressed this last time. I'll probably go into a little more in depth here. But it's, uh, I call it PRPR. You should have a positive physical response, preparation, or relaxation, preparation, and ritual And uh, so the idea is, how much do people actually spend time on that? Well, I'll spend a boatload of time. So to me, I'll actually have practices dedicated towards that, training uh, people how to have proper PR, PR uh, between points. Because the mental, emotional aspect of tennis is is significant. Most people you talk to will say, well, you know, it's uh, 80% of the game or whatever percentage it is. Well, if it's that much, why don't people work on it? Um, you know, because they know that you know hitting a shot is tangible. You can see the results. Well, um, I, I think you would be uh, safe to say that Djokovic, for example, all of a sudden uh, didn't have just a different forehand, and that was the difference between what he used to do and what he does now. It's uh, you know he had a complete mind uh, mind shift on how he was going to compete and how hard he was going to work, and just uh, the stick to itiness uh, that he has. I don't know if that's a word, but stick to itiness. Um but uh, so the mental aspect is huge. So that would be part of the fundamentals and uh as well as uh just your shot selection, working on uh you know, bread and butter shots, even in uh martial arts, I you know, training for many years. You have certain combinations that you feel really comfortable with and that you know if somebody moves one way you can counter and do a couple different things. Well it's the same thing in tennis uh, you have, for example, if I'm going to be on the ad side and I feel like it's a break point against me, um, then I know, for example, my kicker out wide. Um, and if I'm going to serve and volley great, but if I stay back, I know I'm probably going to get a ball up the middle of the court. And then I'm going to, uh, take that forehand and, you know, go, uh, to the do side, uh, either end attack, followed in, or, um, you know, take a pretty good crack at it. So, you're gonna have bread and butters, or if you're playing a, you know, a two hander's got a really nice high uh, return, that kicker might be neutralized. So you got to have Plan B, and and so you have these bread and butter shots, but you got to practice them. So it's just not the technical work; um, it's more of the mental preparation and that sort of thing. So again, fundamentals are uh, several aspects, not just technical. Now, I will say this, and I agree 100% uh, with Stevie Johnson and some other people that I've had on the show, that uh, at a younger age, the more you have those fundamentals down, uh, then it just becomes a matter of time before you uh, grow into your shots, etc. So it's really working on the ability to have an all-court game. So I work on, even with uh, younger players, that uh, have the aptitude, I want them to know how to serve and volley. I want them to know how to hit a chip return, um, maybe even follow it in. I want them to be able to hit a half volley, uh, to be able to hit slices off both sides. I call also what's called a get-out-of-jail-free card. I want them to be able to take turn their grip a little bit and do a little squash shot on the forehand and use a uh, you know, continental grip or maybe even uh, a more severe grip on the backhand side to hit balls from behind them. You know if they have to get out of jail, so it's just learning how to do a little bit of everything so that regardless of where they are on the court they can uh they can sustain a point and go from defense and then all of a sudden be able to move quickly up and go to offense. That's fundamentals, and so uh you know they're having you know obviously good technique in their game uh technically mechanically, but then also just understanding that they uh they do want to attack. And this is what I call, uh, uh, you know, having a presence on the court. You want to position people to death or you want to, uh, let them feel the weight of your presence. So even at a younger age, I want, uh, even though kids are short, um, you know, for example, like even my, my son or other, other players that have kind of full court, all court games, I want them to learn how to position people to death and kind of get in there and, uh, and take balls from midcourt or, you know, feel comfortable coming in when a, an opponent's stretched out. So that's fundamental in terms of the technical, uh, the mechanical, but also their shot selection, what's their bread and butter, what can they count on, and then especially their mental control, their PRPR, PR, their attitude. And while we're at that, I'll just go over that again, Positive Physical Response, Relaxation, Preparation, and Ritual again, being a fundamental that we need to work on is our mental aspect of the game. So, for example, uh, if you if you were to finish a point up at net, you would, uh, you know, immediately put the racket in the opposite hand and you're t- you, you turn from the point, you put your back to the point. Uh, that's basically a physical way of saying, um, I'm putting the point behind me. And then you... Uh, you know, your head shouldn't be drooping or anything. You can fist pump, you can slap yourself in the thigh. You can do all sorts of these things. Um, but the main, main, uh, look is a positive physical response. A lot of times you'll see people they'll have, they'll just kind of hold onto the racket handle and it'll just, the the racket will droop. Well, that's not as, uh, you might say, uh, in control looking or aggressive looking than if you hold the racket by the throat and the, and the, The tip of the racket's up and the butt is down. Um, If you look at most great players, the racket's in the opposite side of the opposite hand. So if they're right-handed after the point, they put it in the left hand and they have it with that look where the tip is facing up a little bit. It's angled upward and the butt's facing down. And it just has a certain look about when they walk back. There's a certain stride. So you have that positive physical response. And then a couple seconds after that is you're spending time relaxing. You're dropping the heart rate, whether you won or lost the point, uh, not giving away too much of what's going on. Um, So that's uh, the second part is positive physical response, then relaxation. And as you cross the uh, the baseline, before you step and serve, that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is they – uh, go up to the baseline, turn around and serve. And oftentimes call this, call the serve even before, uh, or while they're tossing, which actually is against the rules. Cause you can't talk during a point. And technically when you started your take back motion, you've started the point. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is people doing that. Um, and I work with them on that is, uh, actually developing a ritual. But as you cross the line, you have to have preparation. You have to think of the next point and, uh, what you're going to do your plan a plan B, um, And at least uh, so you know when you step up to serve or return, whichever you're doing, that you're, I call it brain dead or autopilot, that there isn't a whole lot of thought going on, that you know what you're going to do, you're sticking to your game plan and your style of play and that sort of thing, and then uh, you let it rip. So uh, that's your preparation. So now your ritual before you serve or return should be the same every time, and if you don't have one, then you should develop one. I, for example, I'll stand next to the service line, bounce the ball three times and I have a pause and then I'll start my uh my swing uh if you look at all great athletes um people with good control in sports uh there's always a pause before they execute hoops is the same thing they'll bounce the ball a few times put it in their hands look at the hoop pause and then shoot um same thing with divers you know get to the end they kind of pause and then they jump off a 30 meter board into a bucket so uh, that's they're amazing athletes the way they do that So, uh, but there's always a pause. So it's the same thing in your ritual. When you're returning, there should be a sense, a time of relaxation and steadiness. So that's PR PR in a nutshell. And it generally take, you can practice it. And, uh, I, I work with, uh, teams on this singles, doubles. Um, we work through, uh, how we, how we connect in doubles together. I call it uh, circular. So it's, uh, you know, you always come together, walk back with your partner, and then circle back. There always needs to be kind of a hop step, an energetic hop step going back to net. So there's this constant uh, communication throughout, whether you use signals or not. Um, but uh, there's part that's part of your preparation. As a doubles player, that's part of your PR, PR. And this is one thing I mentioned on a prior broadcast is that singles players, if they're uh, they should make good doubles players to themselves. I mean, if you were playing doubles with somebody and you like playing doubles with them and had good char- uh, chemistry, you wouldn't, after they missed a shot, you wouldn't say, hey, you knucklehead, what are you doing that for? Uh, you would say, hey, that's all right. And you know, your opponent might say, hey, my bad. And you go, that's okay, let's get this next one. Well, that's how you should do it in singles. So you should treat yourself like a good doubles partner would. And PRPR helps you do that, being mindful of that. So – uh that's a fundamental, is learning how to manage the points uh, between points. And another major fundamental, um, and I think uh, Chuck Creasy's right on this, is if you can control the momentum of a tennis match, you can control the match. Well, that may seem like uh, kind of obvious, but most people that I watch when I watch them play points, nobody has control the momentum. It's kind of a tit for tat or back and forth, add in, do, set out, or 15 love 15 all 15 30 30 all as opposed to and it's because of the shot selection it's not because the other person is you know that good or you made that many mistakes or whatever it's just because of the shot selection not they're not really aware that if you control if you can win three points in a row obviously you want to win every point but people don't think that way if you if you can win three points in a row you can control the momentum of a match and let me give you an example how it often goes somebody will uh, break And then the next point, inevitably, I'll ask people this. I say, what happens if somebody just, uh, uh, your opponent just broke you? What do they do that next point? Oftentimes, there's a sense of relief. It's like, whew, they can let their guard down. What do they do? They play looser. And if they play looser, then they're going to be in trouble. So that's what you want to uh, avoid. But if you're thinking more along the lines of what I call triplets or you know, three points in a row, then if you just won deuce, add out, and you won the game, you're thinking the next point, whether you're serving or returning, I got to win this point, because that will, that will clinch my momentum swing. And it's really intuitive. I mean, if you think about it, anybody watching a tennis match, uh, just think about this, you're sitting there watching, and it's 30 love. And all of a sudden, it's 30-15, uh, you don't think too much of it. Watching, then it's thirty all. You're going, oh. Let's say it's five all in the mat, in the set, and you're going, ooh, okay. And you go, that's all right. You can, and then it's thirty forty. They've lost three points in a row. Everybody's going, whoops, something's you know somebody's losing the momentum. And then they win that game or whatever. They know, you know, it's fairly intuitive. And even the score. I mean, I, I don't know about any of you out there, but uh, I recall, um, you know, ha- have have you lost? Uh, you know anybody that's Won a match when they were down 6-0, 5-0. So it's possible because it's the it's not the score per se that matters. It's how you control the momentum and can you recognize it and stop the bleeding, and that's a skill set. Learning how to use your shot selection, um, <clears throat> excuse me, your shot selection to uh, control the momentum, switch the momentum, maintain the momentum, or gain it. So these are some of the things that are fundamentals that we work on that a lot of times people just skip because they're more, uh, they're more technical or mechanically based. And personally, I think one of the biggest things that lacks in even working with juniors, I think adults most of the time have a fairly good grasp of these things, even though I've worked with a lot of adults where I have to kind of help them on it, but, um, a lot of times, and this is when we go into transformational coaching as and versus transactional coaching, is I think a lot of coaches, and I can't be broad brushing it, but a lot of programs, the coaches, they're really more into the numbers <clears throat> and they really don't uh, emphasize th- this mental or emotional aspect of tennis because it's just, it's not worth the time. They They want to get more people on court and make more money. And that's transactional coaching. Um, it's just your, your child or somebody who's just a transaction. And so there really should be, any program they're in, there should be an emphasis on character. There should be an emphasis on uh, mental development, emotional development, being uh, mentally strong between points. In the long run, that's what's going to do it. So that would be a case of a fundamental that has to be approached. Secondly is opportunity, and I might bounce back if I can uh, remember a couple things or just you know, if we come across a couple things for fundamentals, but there's a lot of overlap. But opportunity, opportunity, we talk a lot of times about scheduling. You know, we got to have an opportunity. You can have the greatest forehand in the world, but if you don't get a chance to use it, uh, you're not going to go very far. So opportunities in terms of scheduling is really important, so you've got to have a tough enough schedule. And obviously, you don't want your schedule so tough. You know, whether it's a team event or an individual event, that you're losing a lot. Although we do learn from losses, I think Wayne Bryan said that the Bryan brothers, uh, obviously, when they were going up through the juniors, they played <clears throat> probably more tournaments than most people I know, but they lost a lot. But from that, you learn. Well, in order to beat that guy, I need to work on this. So it just makes you better. Well. That's an opportunity. The schedule. Um, so in collegiate coaching, the scheduling I think is highly significant. I always try and play. As, you know, we try and play as many ranked teams as possible, and then you have certain. You know, uh, you know some teams. You might say, look, we want to play twenty five percent or in this ranked range, another twenty five percent in this, and another twenty five or fifty in this range. You want to make sure you have matches that you know you can win, and some that are going to be really pushing, and some that hey, you're lucky if you get out of there alive. Uh, cuz all those you're going to get uh uh skill sets from so th- those are type of opportunities but fundamentally the opportunity that's most important is what you're doing every single day in practice the opportunity i remember uh one time when i was uh, uh coaching a group of guys i'd stop them and say hey just look around look at the stars or not the stars it was during the day i said look at the look at the sun look at the mountains This is gorgeous out here. You know, it's just an opportunity to be playing. I mean, it's that first and foremost, what a privilege to be able to play this game, particularly as part of a team, have a bunch of great buddies, that sort of thing. But opportunities is day-to-day practice, so it's an opportunity. I tell you what, if I had, sometimes I'll tell guys if they get a little frustrated with something, I said, man, if I had somebody feeding me serves just so I could work on my return, that's like eating ice cream. You know, just a uh, you know one of the most important shots in the game. Somebody's going to spend time hitting serves to you. That's like a bonus. So uh, looking for those opportunities. Along those lines, there's a saying: "What are you doing with the dash?" And I have this written on our team practice shirts. There's just a dash, and uh, there's just a dash on some of our competition shirts. And people go, "Well, what's that line?" I said, "Well, it's a dash." And what it means is, "What are you doing with the time?" You know. Ultimately, we're born at a certain date, and we die. So what are we doing with that little dash between them? Well, we can kind of cut that up into all sorts of time frames. So, for example, what am I doing with the dash right now, doing this recording? It's fairly late at night. I could be sleeping. Uh, But I wanted to get this out, and uh, there's been a lot of people with a lot of positive feedback who uh want to hear things and and write in and send questions that sort of thing they like a lot of the interviews so i'm using this opportunity to help you know promote uh tennis but uh, again the 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 goal of the show is to encourage and inspire and educate uh, coaches parents and young players so they can in turn turn around and inspire and coach, uh, instruct and motivate other players and parents and coaches. So we have better tennis players and and hopefully, uh, you know, we all are better people for it. So that's part of the goal. So that's um, that's what I'm using this dash for. But what we're talking about is even on practice. So when we show up to practice, what are we using that time for? When we're working on our returns, are we focused on that time? When we're working on our serve and volley, and our I have a what's called a a three-shot series. Can we make those three shots? Uh, I have a warm-up drill where the entire team has to hit for five minutes, and they can't miss or we restart it. You know, are we focused on that thing in terms of hitting our groundies and our movement up and back to the net and back to the baseline and that sort of thing? Are we focused on our studies? Uh, What are we doing with the dash in our studies? You know, are we doing giving our best? Are we just, you know, getting by? Are we t- our time management skills uh, socially? You know, the types of friends we're hanging out with and the things we're doing, um, any hobbies and things like that. So there's tons of opportunities to say, okay, what am I doing with my time? What am I doing with the dash? So those are all important. So those are Opportunities. Again, one of the most important opportunities is every day is not only to work on your strengths, but to work on your weaknesses. A lot of players want to shy away from that, but really, champions. Uh, you know, if you remember, I had a, a short show with Alan Fox. who will be joining me in the future to kind of uh, <clears throat> excuse me, be more uh, uh, address his book uh, more in length. But he said his goal was just to outwork everybody. You know, he said he wasn't the greatest athlete, but he just wanted to work harder than everybody. And uh, you put in the time, you put in a lot of time working on shots uh that weakness. I'll give you an example. I had a former player for me, he was in uh San Diego. He started he was he played at the time twelve on the team. He was like one twenty five in the country, he was number twelve on my team. By his senior year he was number one on the team, top twenty-five in the country, and when he went on tour, he's about five hundred in the world before he got a bit of a shoulder injury. But one of the things he had a two hand forehand. And uh Chris, I'm talking about you if you're listening. So he had a two hand forehand, and uh the thing is he had two hand forehand, one hand backhand, and that's just kind of how he had started when he was younger. Uh at that level some guys could kinda take advantage of that two hander, so I had to teach him a one hander to release that hand. And we'd go out early in the morning, and this is in addition to normal team practice, and he'd want to uh work on that forehand. So we worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. I remember uh, you know, the feeling he got when he ripped a one hander, uh he was stretched out wide, the guy thought he had him and he ripped a one hander. And uh the hooting and hollering on the court after that uh feeling of elation was well worth it. So working on those weaknesses. And now I think he hits with a one-hander all the time. So, uh, uh, so the opportunities are abundant, uh, every day. And just, it's how you look at it. Thirdly is the C conditioning. So, uh, it goes without saying that, uh, in fact I think there's been a recent article I'm still looking I I'd, I'd heard about it but I'd like to find out but it talked about uh, tennis players being uh the most conditioned and if not the most complete athletes of all sports. Um I nowadays I could understand that uh, speed, agility, strength, finesse, uh just all those different things but uh, and the and the body uh percentage, body weight and fitness and all that. Uh but uh the conditioning is I've always felt as a player And even as a coach, you know, I try and uh, keep fit enough to uh, model it. But when we shake hands with an opponent, we should be saying to them, all right, buddy, or if you're a gal, all right, lady, uh, if this thing goes three sets, you're mine because I am way more fit than you. And there is nothing you can do that's going to tire me out. If you look at Federer, you ever see the guy tired ever? I mean, Djokovic runs around, and I think he's just more emotive than Federer, but just doesn't look tired. And some, But some of the other guys in the, on the tour, comparably, uh, look gassed sometimes. But I don't think I've ever seen Federer gassed um, and other players. So even at the collegiate level or even at the elite junior level, if you're going to be, uh, I even tell just, you know, you're – average junior that look if you're more fit than the other uh, player if you're faster if you're quicker it'll make whatever game you bring to the table way better so if you keep everything constant and you just get better fit you know and better uh, better fitness you have a huge advantage that's a weapon i think a lot of people don't realize that that your fitness is a weapon and if you if you're quick to the ball then you know even if you're a little off on a technique or a, a technical aspect of your game you can make up for a lot by being fit but bottom line is, is you know, there's this old saying about uh, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I mean, it is true in tennis. You get tired and you don't want to engage in that long rally. You go for the cheap shot. You go for the drop shot. You go for too much because you just know you can't sustain it. The better shape you're in, uh, the more of a nightmare it's going to be for your opponent. So your conditioning needs is very important. One of those aspects of conditioning that I find... Is uh, that a lot of people, and I work, uh, I intentionally do this. Is a lot of people aren't even aware of their nutrition. And so I have an actual nutrition handout that I go over with my players and a nutrition quiz that they have to take. And it's just uh, mainly for just so they actually know how when they go sh- uh, to the grocery store and they got to get food or there are certain places, they know how to. Uh, to pick food, be able to calculate just quickly, you know, the grams of protein and, um, you know, and and how many calories that actually is or what percentage really is all that matters Uh, in terms of the fat intake and that sort of thing. So they know when they're picking up something, is it 30% fat, is it 10% fat, is it 50? And uh, just to be able to at least be wise about their choices, uh, protein, carbohydrate, etc. So uh that's that's an important part but uh you can't expect a lot of people to know it if they're not educated so a lot of times uh i just use a type of a short quiz and a handout and i go over it with them so they at least are aware of that particularly at an elite level uh, athletes burn off and require serious amounts of carbohydrates and uh you know you need your proteins after you play and the it, it it's good to know just the type of and i can go over this sometime but just the type of uh uh water consumption and uh people <clears throat> excuse me aren't just aware of all that goes into uh, preparing and sustaining uh, your body and then uh fourthly is unity uh team unity is huge but even if you're not part of a team you know tennis is a it's a team effort you know whether it's your parents and your coaches and friends and uh but I'll just speak from a collegiate point of view is you've gotta have that team unity. Um social there's a study recently that talks about social cohesion as opposed to team uh goal uh unity. So for example, a lot of times teams will say, Hey, uh we're all goal minded, we all have the right same goal, so we can kinda work hard and we're real tight on that goal. You know, football team might be that way, or basketball, hey, we're gonna win conference, we're aiming for a national championship, or whatever it is. And that goal keeps people focused. But what you'll have a lot of times in those locker rooms, you have a lot of dissension socially, but they're focused professionally. Let's say if we look at the professional ranks, Um, you'll hear about this all the time. Hey, I don't care what they do in their private life and we don't get along, et cetera, but when we get on the field, it's all business. Well, it's been actually, there's been a recent study that talks about what's called social cohesion, or in other words, unity and and actually liking being with each other has far greater results than product uh or result cohesion so for example if you have players that enjoy being with each other and do things socially their that ingredient or that that uh something uh you might say extra extra ingredient because of their liking each other, caring about each other, propels that team or that pair or whatever to a much higher level than if they weren't. So it's an interesting study, but all that to say is that uh, uh, unity is a huge factor in uh, success. And then the last thing, oh, I actually, I'll mention this, is uh, even while I was coaching the Big West many years ago, Uh, There was, you know, we won it a few times and pretty much were always in the finals. But um, I think worst was semifinals. But one time we had uh, lost to a team that if you looked on paper, we were much stronger than we had several guys that were in the top five in the country, et cetera. But but we lost to a team and it's because of this social cohesion. Uh, They had nothing to lose slash uh they just kind of enjoyed hanging out and, do, and doing stuff and so they uh i think you know there was just that little something you might say special or extra uh that for that given team that just helped them propel just uh dig down deeper um so it worked in their favor so it is uh tangible in that sense so we've had fundamentals opportunity conditioning unity And the last thing is success. You're going to have success if you have all those things. It's unavoidable. You will have success. Now, how you label success um, or how you measure it, that's up to your definition of success. But you will have success. I mean, think about it. If you work on your fundamentals hard, if you have the opportunity to practice and implement those fundamentals and you're in shape and you have team unity, you already have success. You've already been doing those things. Uh, so it's uh, kind of icing on the cake for those other things for success. Now let me back up, because part of that is uh, I have some sayings I use, and they kind of encompass all this. If you always give your best, you'll sometimes play your best and one time be the best. Well, in this focus idea, if you always give your best, let's just start there. Most people I mean, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus. A lot of people, uh, many people, do not give their best. A lot of youth that I work with or that I'll do clinics for, their best is, because I see it all the time, they'll work hard, but and they think that's their best, and then when you actually get them to do way more, then the whole ruler has changed. The whole measuring stick has changed. Now they're like, "Oh, that's my best." What I thought was my best isn't even close. And I give them a, I give them a little test. A lot, uh, just about every time I start with a new group, I call it the jump test. I've been doing this for about twenty years, and it never fails. Is I have people stand on the sideline, and I ask them for, uh, I say, uh, everybody's toes on there and I want you to jump as far as you can. So they all do, and I have them stop, and they mark if there's a, you know, depending on the number of people, I'll have a little piece of chalk or something, we'll mark where they landed. I'll have them go back, and I'll say, okay, now imagine your parents giving you a milkshake if you beat it, or if I have something, sometimes I'll just have a couple students uh, get up and do it, and I'll give them a reward if they beat it, and the class cheers for them, or the group of people cheer for them. But inevitably, Everybody, I've only had a few exceptions where they don't, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they got a late start or whatever, I say, I want you to beat it. If you beat it, you'll get this prize. And they do. They beat it. So then I'll ask them, well, what? So my first question is, what did I ask you to do? And they'll say, oh, jump uh, far or something. And, And then usually it takes a couple guesses. And then usually some kid will say, oh, you asked us to jump as far as we can. And my next question is, and I'll let you think about that. What was? What do you think my next question is? My next question is, well, why didn't you? Ah, and usually I get these looks at me like, that's not fair. Well, the point is. I asked him, I said, well, why didn't you? And they said, well, because we weren't motivated. There was no." Th-. I said, oh, really? You need internal motivation? You, I mean, external motivation in life as opposed to you don't want to do it just because you want to be better at something? So that reveals something. I mean, we all like external motivation. But I think John Wooden was the classic uh, that most uh, coaches follow that he didn't believe in external motivation. He said, you either want it or you don't. But I think external motivation. I think Wayne Bryant talks about this is backdoor motivation and being sneaky about it. And I I agree. There's it's fun. You know, you get a cookie if a kid does something. I so I'm we all like it. And let's not kid ourselves. Everybody likes a pay raise. There's uh, external motiv <laughs> external motivation. But uh, so yeah, external motivation. So I'll ask him uh, what what else, and they'll say, well. Because we don't know, and I've had kids, and the light will go on, they'll go, because we don't know how far we can do it. And I said, exactly. I said, that's, and that's the job of a coach or a parent or a teacher is our job. And I used to have a saying, I, I still use it, is my job as a coach or as a mentor, as a teacher, is to get you to do things you don't necessarily want to do. For example, study, read, or run the lines, or work hard on the court, or whatever it is, to get you to a place you never thought you could be. And, uh, in other words, you know, you have somebody who has raw talent, you, you put them through the rigors and the discipline while having fun. Um, and then to the point where they wouldn't do it themselves cause they, cause people don't push themselves enough cause they don't know what they're capable of. And that's the whole point. They would have jumped as far as they could in the first place if they were capable of it. And, uh, so then you motivate, push, uh, disciple, mentor, encourage, etc., whatever you want to call it, and you get them to be better at it, to now their normal is much higher, and their expectations are much higher. So they get that idea. And I said, well, so every time you're on the court with me now, and with these other coaches, or if you're in school, your best, you have to realize that jumping as far as you can, you're not really aware of what that can is, your ability And this goes along to another saying that I have is that, and I put this up on some posters, is that rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. Rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. And that's especially because most people, or many people, I'll go back, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, is we tend to think that what we're capable of is this great thing, and that's why the kids don't jump as far as they can. They say, oh, I can that's as far as I can jump. No, it's not. you can jump way farther than that. And if I bet I bet if I asked them I get put a thousand bucks on the line, I bet they could beat that other mark. So our mediocrity is where we tend to live, but rare greatness is abundant and cheap. I mean uh, rare uh, greatness is. Uh, it comes at a steep price rather, and you know, it takes hard work and it takes vision and it takes someone to push you so the whole idea of our focus is to get us there, and our coaches are to help us get us there so the I mentioned about the kind of the focus philosophy or how I operate each day or you know the different things uh you know obviously there's other philosophies of coaching, but that's more of an acronym of that kind of guide, some guiding principles. But let me let me go into what's called different aspects of competition, or particularly what's called um, transformational coaching. And uh, I'd like to actually kind of go over some things that uh, Joe Ehrman wrote in his book, Inside Out Coaching. And he talks about transformational versus transactional coaching. And uh, one of those things is, well, first of all, what is transactional versus transformational coaching? Well, in kind of describing some of it, the, the question will be answered. But transformational coaching is... Coaching that is more concerned about the you know, about the whole person slash the process rather than the product. So we often talk about process versus product uh goals or focus. And I think most coaches will tell you they're or a good coach I'd say, is more interested in the process. Why? Because if the process is done right, the results speak for themselves. So for example, that's why you know, I have even athletes that uh, maybe don't want to, in doubles, are still not used to serving and volleying. Well, if you do it enough, it pays off, and you're more proficient at it. There's a reason why Mike and Bob Bryan are the best doubles team in the world. There's many reasons, but uh, they're very proficient at it. Jack Kramer used to say, even watching uh you know it's just pure geometry you get up the net it's easier to uh, cover things now obviously the game's changed a lot these days uh, with the power and the speed of things but uh you still want to pressure people the closer you are to net i have a little ball toss uh, example i use with people that i'll toss the ball you know if they're far from me they can't they have no chance of getting it on a certain angle if they keep the angle the same the closer they get to me all they got to do is stick out their hand and they can get it so it's the same principle with volleys again the point here is uh is the process. So if you focus on the process and doing things right, the results take care of themselves. If you focus on the product, uh, then the ends justify the means. Then we have we have tarring of baseball bats. We have, uh, you know, deflate gate in the NFL. We have, uh, you know, anabolic steroids. We have cheating. We have all this stuff because all you're focused on is the uh, the product instead of the process. Transactional coaching is, and he gives a whole list of what transactional coaches do, but for example, some of them operate out of uh, shame or there's just something in their past, maybe they have to prove something or um, you know it doesn't have to be that insidious, but it's the idea that they're not really concerned about the person they're more concerned about the uh, the win loss um, or maybe how they look to other people. I mean let's face it, some coaches uh, if they if they lose their reputations on the line. So they're going to jump on a kid for making a bad play. That's transactional coaching, which isn't to say that a coach can't get upset, but, uh, we're going to talk about some of those issues. So for example, let's, uh, he talks about inside out coaching and I, I agree a hundred percent on this is as a coach or a teacher, I think that's why as coaches and teachers, it's more of a calling. You might say, uh, it's, um, when you're involved with youth and, uh, or if you're a director, you know, of some sort, it's you do it because you really care about the the development of the sport. I, I'd I'd put this out here. I think, um, boy, this is another whole topic. But uh, if you just really honor the sport, and I'll talk about this in competition. But if you really honor the sport itself, you know, respect it, the history and things like that, you're going to act a lot differently than if you're more interested in the wins and losses um but uh you know successful transformational coaches who care about the players they have inside out they're they're actually why they ask the internal questions and why do they do certain things um and so here's some questions why does someone coach? And as a parent, you might want to ask this if you're putting your kid into a program or things like this, you want to know if the, if the coach is transformational or transactional. A, they can say one thing, but what do they do? Um, why do I coach? You know, we can ask ourselves that. Why do I coach the way I do? Like, I know I coach the way I do. A, I'm extremely competitive. I'm, I'm detail oriented. Um, I, I learned a lot by watching. Um, I was, you know, blessed with an kind of an athleticism where I can watch something and then kind of mimic it, whether it's windsurfing or whatever it is. So I, I do a lot of visual, but I know a lot of people aren't visual. So I do part whole or whole part. It just depends on the person. Um, so I'm a teacher kind of uh, mentality where I want, I'll, I'll, I'm really patient where I was like, I'll, I'll dissect something for hours if somebody needs it. But some people don't need dissection. Some people just need to look at something and just do it. But why do I coach that way? Well, uh, sometimes and that's why some coaches connect better with other people is it works for them. And then you go, Oh, okay. You connect with somebody and you go, this is uh try this. Well, you coach that way because that's how you learned how to play. Uh, maybe you coach a certain way because of somebody that inspired you why do i coach in the first place uh you know and again i'm asking questions from your end if you're asking yourself these but i'll give you you a quick example um my coach in college uh bob biggs over over uc davis uh, he was you might call players coach he wasn't necessarily you know a uh uh, one of the best uh, tennis players in the world but he knew how to coach and he knew how to relate to athletes and he was an athlete himself Played professional football etc so um, he was highly respected and just uh, you know so for me it was an enjoyable experience and uh, he was competitive like I am extremely so I could relate to that um, but he did it with class and he fought hard and uh, those sort of things so when you have great people that are in your life that coach, those characteristics bleed over. So I'm sure that's a huge reason I coach. been coaching for so long, you know, and after playing world team tennis, I was, you know, uh, you have a direction of whether you're going to play on tour or whatnot. And, you know, to me, the coaching was in the blood and you know, and uh, and or directing and being involved in teaching to some degree. So and that's one of the reasons I have my master's degrees and doctorate, et cetera, because I enjoy that aspect, kind of uh, that mentoring or that teaching aspect. So why do I coach the way I do is a question you could ask yourself or, you know, wonder about a coach working with your child. Uh, what does it feel like to be coached by me is another question. I think that's a great question. What does it feel like? like to be coached by me so that's a question that uh you could ask of somebody you know or you could think about yourself would you like to be coached by me or i ask that like myself would i steve would you like to be coached by me uh in many ways yes uh sometimes i don't know (laughs) i have to think about that i know there's sometimes when uh if i do lose uh you know, if there's a certain aspect of, let's say, a day is going a little sour, would I want that? Uh, you know, you have to think about it. What uh, What do I want to accomplish by coaching? How do I, or in other words, how do was how do I define success? So you could ask yourself that, or maybe even ask a coach, "What do you define as successful?" And we'll cover that in just a moment. But uh, so those are a transformational coach might who should have answers to those transactional coach, they might, uh, but at the same time, maybe they're more interested. And Joe Ehrman gives a lot of examples, you know, coming from professional football, um, where there's, uh, you know, a lot of transactional coaches, All right. In his experience. And he was obviously a great, uh, phenomenal football player. And he's gives some funny stories that I'm going to read in a sec. Um, but, uh, So, bottom line is, is setting up uh, some of the more inside out kind of dealing with some of the inside out issues um, of uh, coaching, and uh, he he labels those transformational coaching as opposed to transactional. So, again, uh, one of the important things about those questions is maybe as a parent, you could be asking your kid uh, your your kids, uh, coaches or instructors, uh, maybe some of those questions or maybe at least kind of paying attention to see maybe what they might respond to those or what do they actually do? Because a lot of times proof is in the pudding, how somebody does something. Um, you know, so in other words, you know, maybe take those questions and say, okay, what does it, what does it look like? Would, would I want to be coached by that person or, Um, how do they define success, that sort of thing. So along those lines, uh, I just want to point out one other thing. Even for those who are involved in education, um, I think Joe Ehrman makes a great point about uh, sports uh, being co-curricular. A lot of times in high schools they'll call it co-curricular. And if they really believe that, then – it uh, particularly even in uh, most universities, they'll say, "Hey, uh, we want play- people to be fully developed, you know, in mind, body, and and spirit, or whatnot." So, uh, to what degree do they support that, you know, in their athletics departments or the recreation, et cetera? Um, but a lot of times in academia, people uh, uh, look at uh, athletic activity or recreational activity as second tier. Well, really, um, I don't know many people that, for example, would disagree with this, that if you spend time training your body or getting activity and exercise, your mind is a lot clearer. And I think there's a huge kind of a disconnect when people say, well, you know, academics is more important, et cetera. Well, um, I think they go hand in hand, you know, we're not just a, we're, uh, we're complex beings and, uh our bodies and minds. I don't know about you, but uh, pretty simple examples. If you're sick as a dog, it's really hard to concentrate. Um, if you're tired, you know, our brains don't function too well. If we're physically uh, not that healthy, I think there's a huge connection. And I think it's very important to see them both as equally important. So uh, he talks about it being co-curricular. But uh, so that's uh, the reason I bring that up is Some people may say, well, uh, you know, they're just more focused on the sports um, as opposed to their academics or other things. But I think they're both highly related. So maybe a transformational coach might be more interested in uh, education because of that. But uh, let me go through some of his book highlights here. Uh, He says transformational coaches... Are dedicated to self understanding and empathy. Viewing sports as virtue, kind of virtuous uh, discipline. Um, here's a really, I think, an insightful point. And this, uh, you can obviously with any of my comments here, you can email me at uh, Steve at uh, coachstevephd.com. Uh, dot com. Or sorry, Coach Steve Clark, PhD. dot com. Um, but uh, he says here a great myth of American sports is that they build character because a lot of people will say, "Oh, sports build character." And I think he's I think he's onto something here. Is that uh, he says that no, most sports are win at all costs. In particular, I think he's referring to the professional level. Um, they're not building character. Now we. Um, at the high school, junior, collegiate level, et cetera, we think that it does build character. But his point is this. Uh, w- winning or doing what it takes to win and all that is not what builds a character. The sports itself don't build character unless the coach possesses character and intentionally teaches it. So bottom line is, tennis, I think, is a phenomenal vehicle to learn self-discipline, time management, getting up after a loss. I mean, you're going to lose. I mean, the whole scoring system itself, just as Alan Fox talks about this, just brutal mentally, and then the ups and downs involved. So uh, learning how to deal with pressure over and over and over, um, there's so many facets about the game, but just learning how after the loss to get up and play another tournament, even, or another match in the back draw. But that's only because of the the sport itself is not going to do that. It's the people around you who possess character and then intentionally teach it. So they use those moments to say, Hey, uh, you know, you lost, but this, So, for example, sometimes I'll say to my players, I say, look, okay, you lose this. If you lost this match, what's the worst possible thing? Your teammates still care for you. You still have a great uh, support system, and you're going to get better. I mean, you know, so you know you got to work on that now. So that teaches character um, as opposed to, you know, you you, – You know the person said man i should have done xyz you know they're learning something about the sport but they're not going to learn a lot of character so we have to be intentional about it but i think his point here is that the coach actually has to possess character and then be intentional about teaching it so uh he also mentions um Along this line, he, he pulls a quote uh, quote from Viktor Frankl, and he says, "The greatest of all human freedoms is the ability to choose how to respond to any given circumstance." I don't know if that's a direct quote or if he's paraphrasing, but uh, the point's well taken. Is uh, you know, so a transformational coach is going to use those opportunities to teach their student athletes or their athletes how to respond uh, to their situations. So I'd like to actually kind of take a break here to uh, uh, read a little bit of uh, of a story um, that uh, Joe talks about in a book. And it goes along the lines. It's going to address this whole idea of competition. And uh, I'll just kind of start off with the idea of competition. Competition. A lot of times I'm extremely competitive, Extremely competitive, and uh, it was kind of my my Achilles' heel when I was younger. And then I went through a period of time in college where I remember turning to a friend of mine, and he was in the stands. I said, "You know, this isn't cutting it," because I was just getting I was getting ticked off. And I said, "You know, I, I got to rethink this." Bottom line, and uh, so I took some time to think how do I how do I handle my my emotions when I'm out on the court because it was becoming counterproductive. And uh, so I spent a summer doing it, and I was actually going to play football uh, that year at college, and uh, I was going to be a defensive back. And uh, so I, uh, as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, if I got angry, at least I can just deck somebody in a football, you know, a uniform. And uh, so as I learned to kind of grapple with it, that's when I learned, hey, look, uh, I can be a better player by learning how to channel and control these emotions because uh, I'm so competitive. So a lot of times people think, well, I'm real competitive, that's the way I am. No. There's no correlation between being competitive and uh uh being a knucklehead or being out of control or uh upset, etc. Um, you know, you look at I'll just give perfect case in point, guy like Federer, I respect him. Uh Sampras, uh Edberg. I mean these guys were extremely competitive. They wouldn't be the great players there were. Roy Emerson. Uh, you know, but they knew how to uh Keep their composure and be class acts, and know the history of the sport, and treat their opponents well. So, a lot of times, you know, people I call them uh, weekend warriors. You know, they get all bent out of shape about things, and they're well, oh, I'm just competitive. Well, I don't think there's a there. I don't think there's a correlation there. And uh, one of the things that Joe Erdman talks about is, uh, oh, well, so all that to say, I'll finish my story is so after I decided, hey, I, I have certain. Uh, Limitations on the things I need to do uh, in order to control or to be able to utilize my competitiveness. You know, that's when I came back to uh, to school and I said, All right, let's do this thing. And that's when I ended up, you know, I was fortunate to be second in the country and an All American, et cetera. Um, I think it helped my game because I am so competitive. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, if it's ping pong or tiddlywinks um, or marbles. Uh, ultimate frisbee extremely competitive, etc. So it helps you in all those things be able to control those things. So um, all that to say, competition comes from uh, he, he talks about this coming from the the uh, the Latin, um, you know we don't need to get all uh, technical about this, but it's basically you know competere and it's mutual quest for striving for excellence. And so I'm going to read a little bit about this because what people find out is um, if we're really competing well, we're actually, our opponent is somebody that helps me get better because you you think about it, you can't get better. I mean, you tell people all the time, if you win everything, you're obviously not playing good enough people. So you're only going to get so good. So you have to have some losses in order to get better at something. And uh, who's going to help you get that loss but uh, an opponent? And, you know, obviously when you're out on the court uh, or the field of competition, you're not thinking, oh, hey, thanks. Actually, Alan Fox uh, does did do that as a player. He, if he was losing, he'd say, hey, at least I can use this opportunity now to see if I can get into this guy's head, and I can actually work on my mental game. So he used that as uh, kind of a motivator uh, instead of getting too uh, too ticked off. But um, Joe Erman talks about uh, – he gives a story where he talks about uh, competing – and uh, I'll read uh, read some of it. There's actually a pretty funny part to it. But he talks about his battle with uh, Joe Hanna, who is a great offensive lineman in the NFL history. And he talks about how he competed against him. And one time, uh, Joe Ehrman had broken his hand, and he had to, or his, um, uh, you know, several of his fingers or something, and he had to put his hand in a cast. And he thought, "Oh, this is great. Now I can just whack John upside the head." And uh, so he said uh, he hit him so hard, he could hear the plaster hit the plastic of his helmet, and he let, uh, and, his, uh, and John Hanna let out a little groan, so uh, Joe Erman's thinking, hey, I got him. And, um, but he goes on to say it didn't, he didn't do any better against him because uh, John was such a good uh, lineman. So he, he, he says, he, looking back, I don't think we ever talked during or after the game, but I always admired the way he handled himself on the field as a player and as a competitor. And now he gives this example of one time what's called a pancake block, and he talks about pancake being laid out flat. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, no uh, defensive lineman wants to be pancaked. So I'm going to read the little story. He says, uh, John Hanna led the lead in pancake blocks. So not looking too good right here. Says on a third and long, pushing down. I used my patent, my patented fake slap and swim move. I faked like I was going to go on the inside, slapped him on the outside, and should have been able to throw my arm over his body to swim past him, and make the sack, and be a hero of the game. I had meditated on it all week, visualized it, and felt the sensation of my. Uh, patented move, you know, we can visualize, and I think that's another actual uh, thing you can practice going all the way back to fundamentals, focusing on his uh, mental aspect, is vision, uh, envisioning things, but here he says, the problem was, uh, I didn't go, he didn't go for the fake, my slap hardly moved him, and just as I was bringing my arm over his head to swim past him, in that quote, quote unquote, swim move, he uncoiled with both uh, fists and just launched them into my sternum, immediately i found myself suspended in midair horizontal to the field as i was floating back to the earth the first thing i thought about even before i hit the ground was films on monday in other words his teammates are going to be looking at the film so but one of the things uh that i haven't said yet is that uh joe herman's brother had died recently and so after uh Uh, Hannah came up to him to pull him off the field because he just decked him. He said, hey, man, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your brother. And Joe Ehrman, who was known for having a very kind of violent upbringing and just was, when you talk about the competitive, the transactional person, he didn't give a rip about anybody, and this is what he says in the book, until he started realizing these things. He says, after the game, I realized that he had been sincere, Johanna was one of the greatest competitors I've ever played against, and this moment explains why. I felt we weren't so much attacking each other as trying to achieve something together. He was challenging me to raise my game to the new level. And I think this is why, in pros, when we see great matches and they're hugging each other afterwards, you know, they just played. They had to bring out the best. And I think the greatest players say that. They say, you know what, he always brings or she always brings out the best in me. I think that's what com- competition is supposed to be. Um and as competitive as I am, there's an old saying, would you rather play ugly and win or play well and lose? I would rather win, and then I'll go fix the ugly afterwards. I call it let's fix the ugly. Don't end on an ugly. Go fix it afterwards. Uh, some of the greatest players you'll find, uh, 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 Marine Connolly, there's a story she was the first American woman to ever win the calendar slam, the last one. Uh, Serena's trying to win it now, but... Um, She was one of the five in the history of the world to do it. Well, uh, after winning Wimbledon, she went over on a practice court and played some uh, practice because she didn't like how she played. So I'd rather win ugly and go fix the ugly. Um, But the point is, is that that person helped me develop my game or point out weaknesses. So um, uh, the whole idea here is uh, after the game, he shook hands and looked at each other's eyes or in each each other's eyes, and I felt uncannily as if I was becoming a better player and better person and so I think that is the nature of competition but I think what happens is coaches don't not all but I think coaches don't see that and and uh and a friend of mine said I I, I agree with him 100 percent one of the best ways to fuse all this competition and to learn how to compete properly is to for coaches to get to know each other and be on the same page I've done this with some teams where I've gone up to the coach and say, hey, man, you know, if you have any problems with my guys, let me know, or vice versa, and we're kind of on the same page and we're you know, there may be some umpires there, but it's more about the coaches. As a as a coach goes, the player goes. And uh so, you know, if we're on the same page with those things and we can actually hold each other accountable and walk away with a great effort and competitive experience, win or lose, uh, we're gonna learn more and it's gonna be a more positive experience. So I think Joe Erman has a, a great point here. Uh, when he talks about this competition and I'm not, I'm definitely not one of these people. Uh, there was a recent story where an NFL player, uh, his son came home with a participation trophy and he gave it back or a ribbon. And I, I'm kind of like along those lines. I don't think people should be given things just to participate. It's like, uh, you know, our culture's gotten too participation oriented that way. Um, you know, I, I think it's great that people participate, but you don't get a trophy just for participating per se. Um, you know, I think the rest of the world is uh I mean it's a tough place and you got to learn how to compete and learn how to work hard for things. And I think kids know uh I think parents maybe don't want them to get their feelings hurt but I, kids know. They know, man, hey, I didn't I didn't work for that. Um in fact, I've known kids that are like, "Uh what's that for?" Uh okay, yeah. They they put it in their uh their drawer. Um they don't they don't really they know that blood, sweat, and tears didn't go into it. Anyways, the point being is that true competition is when you bring out the best in somebody and working hard. So um, I think Joe's made some great points on that. Well, we've covered several things um, in terms of competition, in terms of a little bit of coaching uh, philosophy with focus. Um Talking about does character build sports, and again going back to that, it's I think it's more of what the coach does intentionally, and that has to do with competition, being a transformational coach as opposed to transactional coach. And uh, you know, we talked about uh, particularly within the fundamentals and how we are mentally and always giving our best. um, You know, we covered quite a bit. And if you have any questions, like I said, do give me a call on the, or maybe in the next show. Um, and or you can drop me an email at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. You can leave some questions there. And I'd like to leave with uh, a thought right here. Is is your best inspiring? You know, I talked about... Rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. Well, that steep price is inspiring, and so I got a question: Is your average or is your regular stuff inspiring? You know, if you watch, if somebody's watching you, what you're doing uh, when you practice or when you compete, is it inspiring? You know, it doesn't matter if you're a three-five or You know, a great college player. Is what you do out there, is your work ethic, is the way you carry yourself, is it inspiring? So just some words uh, to think over. And next time, uh, I'd like to maybe cover some of the small, I talked about big picture items here, maybe some more of the smaller scope things, but particularly about the mental aspect of the game, controlling momentum and things like that. But tune in uh, to our next shows. And uh, I'll be having other guests, for example, like uh, Wayne uh, for uh, Alan Fox coming up, uh, talking about his book, Tennis Winning the Mental Match. We have uh, some other sports psychologists on, as well as former great players coming down the pike, even uh, of the greatness, likeness of Roy Emerson. Uh, So thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. got to